0: Welcome to Wireless Future. We are back with another episode where we will answer questions that we have received in different social media and I'm Emma Björnsson and I will answer them together with Eric Larson. Are you with me on the call?
1: Oh yeah, I am, How are you today?
0: I'm great. And today we have uh, sort of tried to gather questions that are particularly focused on reconfigurable intelligent surfaces, which is a topic that we have covered in the previous episode. But let me start with asking you a question, uh, in more general: uh, Why are people talking about 6G already now when 5G has barely been released? <sighs>
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer. I mean, I suppose that, you know, if you are in research or or development for that matter, you always think about what's coming next, right? And I do think uh, although 5G has not been like deployed everywhere, uh, it does seem that the standards are maturing and being finalized so that it does make sense to look out for like the next thing that we would be working on. Do you have a different answer?
0: No, I, I think you're totally right and I think when it comes to the timeline of the development it's sort of like 10 years ago people started to come up with the ideas of the main new features of 5G Like Massimimo and the use of millimeter wave bands and things like that and then uh, it takes a few years for people to start to understand which are the different ideas that fly and which uh, will not really work out so well in practice and then you can start with standardization and uh, uh, doing uh, all the work that comes to that and then building products and then eventually after ten years you're actually done with something that can be used uh, in real life.
1: Yeah, and I suppose there are also emerging new technologies that are sometimes foreseen as components of future generation wireless. I mean, reconfigurable intelligence surfaces, that'll be the topic of the Q&A today, might be one of those. I mean, or at least sometimes argued to be one of those. So there might also be, I mean, a thing here that um, new technologies emerging and one sees the potential to exploit those for future generations and and just the sheer fact that there are new technologies emerging then that pushes the need or the desire for a new generation of of systems or of standards.
0: Yeah, so uh, Reconfigurable Intelligent Surfaces or RIS as we abbreviate it, uh, so this is uh, in a nutshell that you, you have a surface with reconfigurable properties that are reflecting or interacting with radio waves that are transmitted from other places so that they, for example, can be directed towards the receiver and improve some kind of propagation conditions and things like that. Mm. And uh, when people are claiming that this is a 6G technology, is uh, that something that we can already say today that that's true?
1: Oh, you mean whether the reconfigurable intelligent surfaces are 6G
0: technology? Yeah, is that a sort of a core feature of 6G? Um,
1: I would think rather probably not. I mean, you know, this reconfigurable surface technology might be there as a component for certain niche use cases, but I'd hardly think it is a cornerstone technology. I think active surfaces, I mean you know this massive mime the way we know it and uh, its incarnation in terms of distributed or cell-free setups also known as p-cell and radio weaves and radio stripes and all that 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 will be the uh, cornerstone 6g physical layer technology i mean antenna spread out and integrated into the environment in the form of perhaps large intelligent surfaces but active surfaces not reflecting surfaces
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's definitely too early to to call which technologies that will be in 6G and which will not. But it's uh, so far, I think there is still a long way to go before we can demonstrate that these surfaces are uh, so important that they will be a cornerstone of, of 6G and solve real problems that we haven't identified. What are, are the problems that 6G needs to, to solve as compared to 5G?
1: yeah, I also think so. Um, so do you think we should um, go move on with the yes questions uh, we can from the question can take next questions? Yeah, um, I think the first question here was on materials that are used for these um, reconfigurable intelligence surfaces. and so what kind of materials that are used? you want to go on that one?
0: Yes, so uh, that depends a lot on what frequency ranges we are looking for, uh, because these surfaces uh, might have particularly been developed uh, to be used in optical ranges or near optical ranges, but now when people are talking about them in wireless communications, it's more of use cases in uh, the conventional radio frequencies like three or 30 gigahertz, those type of 5G frequencies. Yeah. Uh, and there, I think the materials that you could imagine is that you have a, a, a big surface with some metal uh, behind it, some copper plate, and then you have discrete elements. Each of them uh, will be sort of like a simple electrical circuit. So some lumped electronic elements, uh, transmission line or something like that connected with a diode. It could be a switch diode that can switch between two different states, and in that way, it will uh, sort of filter the incoming signal in different ways depending on which state it is. Or it can be a varactor diode that could sort of more continuously change its capacitance and then change in a continuous way how it interacts with, with radio waves. Then, if you go up in frequency graphene or ceramic, uh, ceramic um, composite materials, there are a number of different materials that people are considering. Mm-hmm.
1: But are these really, I mean, new or modern materials? It sounds like mostly classical electronics, right? Do we know that? Or is there like some cutting edge material science or technology that enters into the design of these surfaces?
0: I think uh, that uh, uh, there are some, some cutting edge variations of these things when you really go into the chemistry behind it. I mean, when it comes to frying pans, we have Teflon materials there for a long time, but variations on the same kind of concept can be there. But then I think the, uh, the important thing is that you will like to be able to change the properties, not only have unusual properties, but change them, change impedances and things like that over time and control it and, and print a big surface in a affordable manner with many small elements that all are controlled. And, and that is a real challenge.
1: Right, so I'm still using the cast iron, by the way. <laughs> but, um, no, no, I, I, I see here, I mean, that the electronics behind might be based on well, say, known principles, but it does use, like, state-of-the-art circuit technology, obviously, to perform the switching and so forth. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah and there is a wide range of uh, materials that people are considering and they all have their pros and cons in terms of how they are behaving in, in different aspects how well you can control uh, it's uh, sort of the delays that they are creating and also what you, the price is to pay in terms of the amplitude losses and uh, things like that mm. Okay so, uh, the next question we got was uh, uh, probably spurred by the fact that uh, our last episode on reconfigurable intelligent surfaces uh, was about myths in that topic. And we got the question why are researchers wasting their energy and resources working on RES when it's obvious that it cannot provide significant gains, like 10 times compared to other existing technologies?
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I, I think the question had several parts, right? I mean, is it obvious that it can't provide 10 times gain? I'm not sure. There might be niche use cases where you can actually get a lot of gain if you're in the immediate near field, for example, and you you know, you know want to form a beam and then you can adjust the, the impedance of the small reflecting atoms that are in the immediate vicinity. But by and large, I think that the gain, I mean, at least if you are like in the mid-far field, of the of the surface, then the gains are not very high, and uh, specifically using intelligent surfaces to improve the SNR doesn't seem to be very viable. They might be useful to improve the rank of the propagation channel by like creating an additional path. So if you are like rank uh, starved, and uh, which is typically I mean in line of sight the case, then. Uh, definitely possible you know you could create another path which would give you like another say singular value of your channel matrix and 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 which would in turn give you um, an an increase in multiplexing gain Uh, but it's hard to see that um, you know that would be much that the C surfaces would be a much more efficient or better way of doing that than using say conventional Relay, which I think is suggested in the question, is a a fairly mature technology. So um, then the other part of the question was why folks are working on this. Well, you know, it it is an exciting technology, I think, right? I mean, there is opportunity to do some good science here, (laughs) to write papers with interesting mathematics and so forth, to do experiments and break new grounds and explore technology that mankind has not yet uh, experimented with. And uh, who knows, in the process, I mean, there might be spin-offs that are uh, discovered and invented that are useful, and there might also be that there are some niche use cases where this technology really is going to break the deal. Um, So I think it is a mix here of curiosity and uh, not knowing the real potential for certain niche cases. And perhaps to some extent just that, you know, well, it's new, let's work on it and let's put our grad students to write papers on it and apply, you know, all the knowledge that we have in, in comms theory and, and, uh, and so forth to um, um, produce more, uh, more academic <laughs> papers.
0: Yeah, so, so sort of in academia, one of our core roles as compared to a uh, industry company is that uh, we should work with basic science. And here, there's a lot of basic research in terms mm-hmm. of material science and how to build these surfaces. And then uh, it sort of challenges the way that we are used to building communication systems according to the communication theory. And then there are new in- interesting problems there to solve and uh, I think what we tried to say with the previous episode is that uh, if the use case w- would be to just improve the sync to noise ratio then there might be other solutions that is uh, doing that in a yeah. uh, better way that is already available but if we can identify some other metric uh, then we it could be a great use case yeah. and then we can see how often that metric really matters.
1: Yeah, and. Again, I mean relating, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that uh, suppose that this technology became really scalable and cheap so we could cover the walls, like I mean the the hall of mirrors in the castle of Versailles with reflecting surfaces and really control the propagation environment and solve all the issues with channel estimation and all that. Sure, I mean you would probably be able to improve on the propagation conditions uh, substantially. But the question is, is that what we, I mean, is that a viable, compared to the fact that, or compared to existing technology, most importantly relaying in its different flavors, right? I mean, full duplex relaying and MIMO relaying and and so forth. Is this a cost-effective technology? Uh, That stands the reason, I think, and um, my bet would be that it's probably not but let the future tell
0: yeah i agree
1: um, yeah so i think uh, on the same theme there was a question here on when do you think that reflecting intelligent surface technology can beat relaying um yeah do we i mean yeah perhaps you could have a go on that emil i mean Yes, yeah, so, so, so I have some thoughts. Or... Mm.
0: Uh, so so I, I I think that uh, uh, generally what you should think about is that uh, we are sort of uh, building a surface that is not amplifying signals. So we are getting rid of power amplifiers, but we need to pay by making them physically large instead. And then if that was the only thing, okay, we trade power amplifiers towards size. Well, then uh, that is what we have shown that uh, you get approximately the same as now but you need to give something that's much larger. But if we can also think about can we use this large surface area to do something that a small a re- uh, relay can't do. Well uh, you were touching upon this type of thing that we could add additional propagation paths uh, uh, and that will improve the rank of the channel and in that way we can uh, send one signal directly and one via the, uh, the surface or, or something like that or mm-hmm. multiplex multiple users. So that is one use case. Then when it comes to things like uh, shadow fading effects particularly when you go up in frequency the risk is that you're blocking the signal uh, and if the surface is large hopefully some piece of the surface will see the uh, device in a good way and and that will uh, help out with that one uh, and then one specific thing that the surface like this can do is also to change the polarization of radio waves and uh, for an IoT device that you put up somewhere it's uh, gonna be fixed there forever and if you're unlucky it has the wrong polarization compared to the uh, mm. signals that are gonna reach it but then the surface can rotate the diagram and you Improve these signal conditions a lot.
1: Mm. So, I really think of reflecting intelligent surface as a large full duplex MIMO relay without amplification, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <I> well.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Um, we so, we want to move on through the list yes. here. Yes. Hmm.
0: Uh, what are appropriate channel models when considering RS systems?
1: yeah see if i could answer that so i think that if this technology is going to be useful ever it's likely to be in cases where we have line of sight at least line of sight between the transmitter and the um, surface hmm. and uh, it's also possible i mean that the transmitter will be in the near field right so we will probably have some sort of line of sight possibly near field model that in turn would have to be crafted carefully if we work with it mathematically I mean uh, I don't think that we could like use all these canonical propagation models that we had in the massive mimo literature with independent Rayleigh fading correlated Rayleigh fading and all that I think we probably have to look closer at the physics here to really make sure to capture all the effects and it's also possible that depending on the atoms in the surface, how close to one another they are located, they would have to deal with and model the electromagnetic coupling effects and and all that Hmm. um, properly. So, um, I mean, the closer to the physics we can get, the better, right? But again, I tend to think that we probably would be, at least one of the links here would be in in line of sight and possibly in near field. So um, that'd have to be modeled properly. Um, do you have any other answer?
0: <laughs> no, I, I think that uh, it's sort of we need to think about what the uh, setup is as you were saying and uh, then we can use uh, Essentially the same type of modeling because it's the same frequency range it's the same kind of objects around there uh, but uh, we need to think about what are the particular properties that this surface is adding and uh, in a lot of research it's like if you don't want to assume a channel model you assume IID Rayleigh fading or independent Rayleigh fading and and that is something that can only occur in practice if you have a a one-dimensional array where the elements are like a half wavelength apart and then under rich scattering conditions you get this kind of model. And I think that has been fine for a long time but now we have a surface that is categorized by being two-dimensional and having element spacings that are smaller than half the wavelength, then these are two reasons why this IID Rayleigh fading model can never ever appear together with the surfaces. So there are other models to utilize, we should just stay away from from that particular model because it can't physically occur.
1: Yeah I think that's probably true for much other many other models as well, I mean I doubt that correlated Rayleigh fading would be a good model for these intelligent, for reflecting surfaces either. I think you'd really have to look closely at the physics and also you'd have to look at it from a case by case um, on a case by case basis. I mean, is the transmitter in the near field or not? Is the receiver in the near field or not? Mm. Do How large is the surface co- compared to, I mean, is it a small piece on the wall in a big room or is it the whole wall in the room that has a lot of other objects that contribute to the um propagation uh, and and, and scattering Uh, so i'm not sure there is like a one fits all model here i think one really had has to look in a case-by-case basis
0: yeah no so so i think what what i was trying to say is that we need to consider spatial correlation channels then uh, the the rayleigh fading we've sort of assuming that we have many more scattering elements in our propagation environment than the the size of the the surface that part might break down so we won't uh, have a gaussian distributed channel anymore that won't mm, be a good yeah, model yeah
1: very very possible yeah
0: mm okay yeah
1: okay so um, I'll move on in the list and uh, there's a next question here on what is the difference between reflecting intelligent surface technology and holographic MIMO
0: yes so this is a good question that uh, uh, I think can create a lot of confusion because uh, uh, people like to categorize things differently in the literature. I, I think that uh, uh, I will try to categorize these as two distinctly different things and I will explain uh, what that means. So a reconfigurable intelligent surface would be something that is placed in between a transmitter and the receiver and have all these properties that we were describing. Uh, then a in holographic my mode the idea is that the surface is part of the transmitter or part of the receiver uh, so it could be that you uh, are putting a signal generator behind the surface and then the signals are going through a lot of different elements that are filtering them and then in this way you can generate the beams that are pointing in different directions and this type of technology is already out there it's being used for building satellite receivers or building uh, uh, I think some uh, millimeter wave transceivers are, are also built in this particular way. And uh, sort of the, it's called holographic because it's sort of built on the same principle as uh, holography that uh, you have a, uh, a surface with certain properties and then you illuminate it in this case with an RF signal and then uh, it, uh, the surface is shaping it so it, uh, the signal looks in a particular way.
1: Right. So the holographic is more like an active transmitter, whereas yeah. the reflecting, as the name suggests, I mean is uh, is a mirror, right? <laughs> or it reflects the signal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, but but then there are some proponents of reconfigurable intelligent surfaces that uh, likes to view it as a. Uh, 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 like an umbrella term for everything that has to do with this type of surfaces, so that, that could cause some confusion. Then they categorize holographic mima as a special case under it. Mm. but uh, I like to keep them separate because mm. yeah, uh, building holographic mimo type of things uh, is something that already there are products on, but the, the real challenge is to build these ones that are separated mm.
1: Yeah. Okay, um, do you want to move on? There's a question here on how deep learning can be utilized in reflecting intelligence surface systems. you want to answer that?
0: Yeah, I can answer that. So uh, I think that there is still a lot of research that can be done around that, but I, I think as always when it comes to deep learning or machine learning, this is something that can be applicable when uh, there is characteristics that are hard to model. and. Uh, I think that uh, when it comes to uh, learning the propagation environment this might be one of the challenges that we talked about in a previous episode as well that you put them out in a particular uh, area yeah and uh, in the room for example and then when the surface gets large there is so many different uh, uh, dimensions that you need to learn in order to figure out where to reflect the signal and where to focus the signal also. and so uh, and uh, if you would like to sort of try to uh, reduce the dimension of the channels that you would like to estimate, then you could potentially try to learn characteristics of the room. So you know that users can only be at certain locations or at least they're more likely to be there. So then we should search for them there first. And and these type of local propagation conditions uh, that only are accurate in, in a particular deployment scenario, but you can sort of tune it for every deployment. Then uh, you were touching upon the mutual coupling in these type of effects, and I think that could be important as well. Uh, that we have hardware effects in the surface that are hard to, to model. Uh, we could uh, neglect mutual coupling and say that well, we can mathematically compute the array response for a big surface like this, but then we yeah, have put mutual coupling into it and we don't know what the array response will look like anymore, and uh, then as we are switching between different uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, different properties in different elements this is also affecting the mutual coupling and a lot of other effects that are hard to model maybe if you switch to different elements to the same state uh, they will will not behave in exactly the same way so there are many things that can be learned there how to they would uh, actually behave and also when it comes to sort of configuring a big surface like this say that you have uh, 2000 elements each of them can have one out of four states then you uh, quickly get a huge number of different types of uh, states that you can choose between and uh, uh, solving the optimization problems there is mathematically possible but will take forever so maybe one can design algorithms uh, that are helped by learning uh, shortcuts Mm.
1: so so basically you're you're suggesting that learning could be used to circumvent or avoid the need for accurate physical modeling that's number one number two is it could be used for um, to help in solving certain optimization problems and number three is it could be really I mean used to learn what the propagation characteristics look like and what mm. w- where the users are more likely to be located so that the system could be optimized to function at its best when the users are where the algorithm thinks they are, say. Yeah, yeah. sure. Sounds like um, a, a direction with possibly some potential for, for good development. Hmm.
0: Um, okay, so next question. Uh, can we use the channel estimation from uplink also in the downlink when using these surfaces?
1: I think so. I mean, or well, isn't this just the usual question on reciprocity? If we are mm. in time-division duplexing then reciprocity holds to a very good degree of approximation or accuracy and then uplink and downlink channels are identical. I mean, so then the fact that there is a reflecting surface or not present doesn't change that fact. And in FDD that's less clear, maybe the angles are the same. Um, So the channel response from uplink could be transferred or mapped onto a channel response for downlink. Somehow using appropriate algorithms, I mean that remains to be really proven. Um, But in principle it could work perhaps. Um, I'm not sure, is that... yeah? Or so, so do you think, think there's something else here <laughs> it, in the it, question?
0: I think there is something else in addition to that. So the propagation channels to and from the surface are going to be reciprocal. But then uh, it, I think this surface can, if you want to, be designed so that it's not entirely reciprocal. So it could be like that if the signal comes in from one angle it will behave differently as if it comes in from another angle, and it will uh, reflect the signal in a, in a slightly different way, so in that way uh, the it, its frequency response will be uh, dependent on the incident angle, and, and then it's not entirely reciprocal anymore.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. So you're suggesting that the surface could be designed in a way that the reciprocity theorem of electromagnetics doesn't hold anymore? Um, that uh, it's possible, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I have to read uh, up on uh, that, I suppose. I uh, think you, to, to break the reciprocity, typically you need uh, some exotic uh, ferromagnetic materials or other strange things. But I mean, if you put that into the surface, who knows? <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how that this is, is done, but I've understood that uh, one could build the surfaces to break your reciprocity if you really want to.
1: Hmm. Yeah, let's I think let's come back to that question perhaps <laughs> at a later <laughs> in a later episode. Hmm. Um, um, again, I thought reciprocity was was there. I mean, unless you had very strange materials in the uh, in the vicinity. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, these surfaces are built from materials that have very advanced properties. So uh, we'll have to check back on that. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah uh, maybe let's uh, move on to next question here is on how quickly we can switch between different configurations in a surface
0: yes so i've been searching for some literature around these type of things because i uh, i think it's it, it's important to, to understand that if you're going to build a system that is switching and following different users and, uh, and there, are, there are different parts of this. So if, we, if you go down to the actual hardware, uh, if you control a element with a diode with uh, two different uh, elements, uh, two different states, then uh, it can take just a few nanoseconds to switch from one to the other. And uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure about the transient effects, but suppose that they are also small, then nanoseconds is not much. Uh, but then if you build a control circuit that is gonna control say a hundred of these elements and then they're gonna choose between different states then they're gonna be a whole sequence of things and maybe they, they're gonna switch from uh, sequentially, for example, In the paper that I found about that uh, it took rather microseconds, uh, up to 10 microseconds, to switch 100 elements. Uh, So that's also not very much. Uh, I think what is really important here is rather how we are sending our uh, communication signals. So if you uh, are creating a, uh, a analog signal using pulse amplitude modulation. We have a sequence of signals that we want to transmit. We multiply each with a pulse form and then we transmit um, them one pulse after the other at a certain uh, distance between them. And these pulses are normally overlapping. So if we're going to change the state and we don't want to mess with uh, the orthogonality between different pulses then we would like to have uh, some kind of separation between one pulse and the next pulse, uh, which we don't Normally have so uh, if we have a uh, like raised uh, cosine pulse with uh, uh, 0.5 roll off, then the next one is uh, uh, and you jump over one pulse, so you have a guard interval there. Then two pulses will be uh, not overlapping anymore, uh, and uh, maybe we will have to to have some kind of uh, guard uh, time intervals when we are switching just to get rid of weird effects that happens in between.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so I'm thinking. I mean, all this switching couldn't like generate nasty side effects because the switching is like a multiplicative effect, right? It comes on top of your waveform. Mm. So you take a waveform in, say, continuous time, a well-defined, nice waveform that occupies some given spectrum frequency band, and then you add this switching. It's like multiplying this waveform with something that changes over time. So multiplication mm. in time domain is convolution in frequency domain, right? So we see a broadening of the frequency spectrum, which number one is on the side because I mean energy will <laughs> leak outside, and uh, number two that leakage could cause out-of-band emissions potentially. And you talked about like switching here in the time scale of a nanosecond. So nanosecond is ten to the minus nine, so that's one gigahertz, right? So couldn't you potentially? couldn't one potentially generate a lot of out-of-band EMC problematic interference here uh, or is it that this interference dies off so quickly with distance that nobody will ever notice it um, yeah.
0: yeah so, so uh, I, I think in any case you want to put in some kind of silence when you are, uh, are switching just because you cannot trust the signals that you're receiving uh, at Uh, that are transmitted while you're switching because uh, weird effects can can happen. And Mm -hmm. then, yeah, as you said, uh, other band effects is something that is interesting there as well. If it's actually going to create a lot of interference then you will have to be silent. Uh, And more generally, I think this is also a standardization question. If this is going to be used, uh, if you have uh, materials that you are changing in its properties at a fast pace, Uh, you're not only changing the propagation environment inside your band, you're also changing it uh, in a wider frequency Mm -hmm. range. So you might be creating small scale fading in uh, another operator's band.
1: Yeah that's not really true, I mean, but again returning to the switching, I'm thinking like think of a squared wave with uh, duty cycle one nanosecond, so that will give you harmonics at gigahertz and then multiples of the gigahertz, right? Mm. Um, And depending on how the switch is actually implemented here, the harmonics, the amplitude might fall off faster or or not so fast um, with frequency. So it seems to me that this will have to be very carefully crafted not to create problems in in neighboring bands. Hmm. Yeah. Um, All right. So the um, next question is on... uh, Experiments, whether we've seen any experiments of real time control of reflecting intelli- in re- reconfigurable intelligence surfaces. Uh, you yes. want to answer that?
0: Uh, yes, I can answer that because I recently <laughs> found a very nice video from the University of Surrey in the UK where they are showing uh, how they are reconfiguring uh, a-, a surface. And uh, I think that might be the the first real-time demonstration. Uh, uh, There are some papers that are describing measurements from before but then typically uh, they've sort of already crafted that the transmitter is at a given location which is in the focal point of the surface. Uh, Here they're putting up the surface in the room. Uh, and receiver at some uh, seemingly arbitrary locations and then uh, as they are moving around the the surface uh, they are uh, pressing a button on a uh, tablet and then they are reconfiguring the surface and you can see in the video how they are improving the SNR by say 15 decibels uh, uh, when they are having the right configuration uh. And I talked with the, the people that have done these experiments and uh, they are using 3, five gigahertz band. They have 2,500 elements. They are uh, like a uh, 0.15 uh, times the wavelength in, in, in maximum size. And uh, it seems to be a, a nice step towards actually building something uh, along this way.
1: Yeah, really. I mean, so how large were the gains you said quantitatively here?
0: So I think the... They they were seeing that when uh, they turn on the surface, and ha- uh, if you compare having it turned off with having it turned on, you get 15 decibels improvements.
1: Oh, 15 the, the, dB, that's a lot. I mean, so uh, that's compared, a lot. To, uh, yeah, compared to not having the surface, then, yeah, or...
0: uh, then it's hard to to quantify uh, these things properly as well because they're, uh, they're using a horn antenna for the transmitter and a horn antenna for the receiver, yeah. so they have very narrow. Angular windows where you can pick up signals. So uh, it's hard to, to know if you would uh, optimally uh, design this surface uh, it, Will you get 15 dB or will you get much more? Uh, is it just that they were able to roughly reflect the signal in the right direction so that something went into the, the horn antenna and uh, That they had so short distances that you get 15 distance well. So it, it's hard to, to evaluate.
1: Right, so we're really getting back to what we talked about earlier, right, that this seems to be to be a really niche use case. We have a horn antenna and definitely you can find niche use cases where you get significant gains. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen whether those gains can be obtained in more general setups or under more general circumstances.
0: Yeah, and there are these classical use cases of reflecting surfaces that are not dynamic, <laughs> that you put up uh, in the countryside to reflect the signal from one hill down to a, a shadowed uh, valley. You uh, just put. Put up a big billboard uh, and uh, then you need to design the billboard so you that you roughly are putting energy down in the valley uh, and with the surfaces you sort of will try to do the same thing but uh, you, you focus it more you can decide on where it should be put and then you can sort of narrow down the the area where the size of the beam uh, right hmm.
1: yeah that, that, that's also i mean again i think it's a niche use case right uh, although yeah. it's an it's an interesting application no doubt
0: Okay, so I think we we have a, a few more questions, and these are a little bit related to reconfigurable surfaces, but also to maybe research methodology. Uh, so. Uh, It says like this, your paper on three myths uh, about reconfigurable intelligent surfaces identifies some misleading statements in several highly cited papers, but uh, many researchers continue to read, cite and build new research on those papers. Um, What can the community do to mitigate these problems that myths are propagating?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, um, I think it's our joint paper that's referred to here, right? The yeah. limits on reconfigurable intelligence surfaces or something like that is published in the communications yeah, I think it's the, magazine. in the, December the issue to, to, oh, yeah. uh,
0: 2020, I think yeah. it's.
1: Yeah, it is, right. So, no, no, I mean, it's true that uh, there have been a few cock and bull statements uh, made on uh, path loss of reflecting surfaces and a few, i think a few other things and uh, you know i mean the point here is that these are no real controversial matters right i mean this is all basic electromagnetics you know you pick up your college textbook classical electromagnetic radiation by helden marion is the one that i had myself in college and um it, it, it all follows i mean from say basic considerations starting off from maxwell's equations so i think one thing that ought to be done is just to train students in physics and in rigorous thinking based on physics and another thing might be to you know well we just have to be (laughs) honest in our papers right and not be afraid of pointing out when something is say wrong elsewhere Um, which is, I suppose, partly also the motivation behind the MESS paper. Uh, What do you think, Emil, should be done?
0: Yeah, I I think we are coming to a a, a point in our research field where we need to, to start also consider that not everything that you read is right and I think that uh, since a lot of our th- communication theory have been built on sort of accurate models and, and rigorous mathematical arguments and things like that, then we are used to saying that uh, well if the math looks right and uh, we, mm. they are building on the right models and everything is right. But then, then in many other research fields it's more like you throw out a um, hypothesis you provide a first experiment related to that one and then the uh, hypothesis is not true unless it has been validated 10 times by others. And, uh, and we might come to a, a point in our research field as well with papers being uh, uploaded as preprints. People want to be fast with putting out uh, the first hypothesis about something. Uh, and then we also need to acknowledge that some of these things that people will put out are, are not right. and uh, uh, people need to be critically reading mm. all of these arguments. Yeah,
1: critical readers, perhaps critical commenters as well, right? And I think, you know, there, there, there is, I think, some tradition in our field of authors publishing a correction mm. when they or someone else have discovered errors in their papers. It's very rare that papers are retracted. I mean, it happens routinely in other fields, right? I mean, that was, for example, if I remember well, it was the was it the New England Journal of Medicine, or was it the Lancet that published a paper on uh, hydrochloroquine as a um, treatment for COVID? And the claim was that hydrochloroquine was harmful. Uh, and, but it turned out that the, the, the data in the paper could not be validated. So the authors retracted uh, the paper, and that's like unheard almost of, I think, in the comms theory field, right? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I think it's whether, very yeah. seldom that people are,
0: <laughs> other people are publishing comments on papers. Uh, 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 what happens uh, occasionally is that the authors are correcting something, but then it's really up to the authors to admit that something is wrong and uh, that and actually correcting that, uh, which I, I think is giving much more credibility to the person than actually just pretending as if uh, an error wasn't there and that it didn't mean what was uh, written in the paper and things like that.
1: Of course, yeah. Yeah, it does, I mean, and uh, uh, I think this really becomes an issue when, say, high visibility papers or pa- papers in, in, in highly visible venues and journals are wrong and where papers with foundational errors attract a lot of followers, uh, mm. there's always going to be a lot of noise out there. And perhaps the best approach is just to ignore the noise <laughs> or neglect the noise. Um, but yeah, you're right. The- I mean, there, 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 there is an issue here, I think, with research methodology and uh, perhaps the desire to be the first and have the most papers and have the most citations and all that
0: exactly and uh, i think it also comes together now with uh, uh, when there's a push towards open publishing uh, even ieee is creating new open journals and they want to attract uh, authors by having a faster review process which also means that faster <laughs> is uh, less rigorous uh, and i think we were noticing these issues like one and a half year ago and we started to to uh, write papers and try to publish them in the conventional venues and and things like that and then it uh, uh, We get out published by people publishing in open journals that had like a, a few weeks of review processes uh, So it, it's hard to keep up when there's so much noise appearing
1: But it is a good question in general. I mean how should or and how is academic publishing likely to evolve in the next few decades perhaps that's something we should return to at a future point in time uh, yeah definitely and yeah well okay so
0: so I think we are reaching the end of uh, this uh, set of uh, questions and answers and we are very thankful for the questions that we have received so far and uh, We will probably ask you for uh, additional questions, or please always ask questions related to our videos and we might pick them up in future Q&A episodes. So with that, thank you for listening to this episode. Yep, thanks a lot
1: and bye bye bye.